Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Thursday, August 18th, 2022, which, as Aaron will tell you, as the poor slob who has to edit this podcast, which goes up tomorrow, this is far later in the week than we normally do this, right? Yeah, this is uh, uncharted ground. Can we both record and edit and publish all within less than 24 hours? It's a challenge. Yeah. It is a Clock's challenge. Clock's and talk fast, Jim. Okay, there we go. <laughs> but, but the reason we are doing this today is the very first episode of She-Hulk dropped this morning. In fact, at 3 o'clock in the morning, so you and I got up bright and early, sat down and watched this thing because we felt like we really can't record this week's episode with have, without having seen this show and commenting on it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think in the end, this was a good call because, again, we will talk at length about the show in the second half of today's episode. But I was really pleasantly surprised at how entertaining the show was. But before we launch into that, you have a, a piece of, of listener mail, which I love that you come into the show from the world of sound. And that actually has a, a quite a bit to do with today's mail, right? Yeah, Dimitri Ravenos, who's a fellow radio brethren, who's also, you know, obsessed with sound because that's how radio people are wired, is uh, brought up a, a very valid point that I'll wholeheartedly agree with, that he thinks that the music behind the Wakanda Forever trailer is doing all of the emotional heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very, very accurate. Starting off with the, the no woman, no cry, you know, and, and it's sad and it's somber and it's slow. And it's got that emotional feel to it, you know, and that carries for the, the first half of the trailer. And then it starts to pick up, and uh, I mean, when when it says the line, and when I wake up, and the claws come out and reveal that there is indeed some form of a Black Panther, you know, that's your, your, oh, it's going to be, and uh, also the lyrics, everything's going to be all right. Hmm. I mean, that is Marvel specifically saying to you, I know you're worried, everything's going to be all right. And to have the no woman, no cry up front, it lets you have your emotional, because I mean, we, we haven't had a chance physically in the MCU yet to mourn the loss of Chadwick Boseman. We've done it personally, but not on film in any sort of way. So this is actually the very first time that they're gonna let you have a, a moment to mourn the loss of Chadwick, but you get the sense it goes from sad to uplifting and powerful. And then to slam on that final line, That's when the, the people stand and cheer, you know? So I, I really have to agree with, with Dimitri. You could have put uh, a image of frying bacon in a pan, and you would have gotten me to cry <laughs> if you would have used the music properly, and, and that's, a, that's a good example of that. So props to Dimitri for reaching out. You get uh, five marvelous Disney cool points. Thank you for your, your feedback, brother. All right. 
But, you know, I mean, trailers are such an, a, a science. And, in fact, it's interesting you bring up the music in trailers because, face it, so often when a trailer is being cut, you don't have the score done. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's literally the last thing going out the door. And so you'll often get music that they've harvested from other films that they will put under the trailer. Oh, I'll tell you, one of my favorites right now is uh, Lux Eterna, who was done by Clint Mansell and was in uh, Darren Aronofsky's uh, Requiem for a Dream. And it's at the very end when all of the terrible things are happening to the main characters. And uh, that bit of music was used for the Lord of the Rings trailer. I want to say it was used for one of the various Spider-Man films uh, earlier in the day and has been used just dozens and dozens of times. Anytime you want tragedy and drama and action where the good guys are losing, uh, probably a Batman versus Superman or a, a Justice League, it may have been used once or twice. But yeah, it's been used over and over, and I just absolutely love this piece of music. Conversely, if you're looking to create a heroic feeling, James Horner's score for The Rocketeer must have gotten reused dozens of times from when that Joe Johnson film came out in 91. I can't tell you the number of times I'd be sitting in a theater and it's like, there's the Rocketeer again. But again, it just, it had that sort of feeling. On the other hand, just to, to parallel what you, you were saying, how many times have we heard Leonard Cohen's get a hallelujah? Oh, hallelujah. Well, if it's, I was going to say, if it's a Zack Snyder movie, there's at least three or four right there. There we go. There is just a sort of an emotional shorthand. It's like, oh, this music tells me I, I get how I need to feel. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing, though, is that there are a lot of times musically when, when you're sitting at the mix desk and you're going, I need sad. Mm-hmm. You've got your own personal catalog of what's triggered sadness for you musically. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and honestly, mm-hmm. this will tell you exactly how my brain works half the time. Mm-hmm. When I'm grabbing music for comedy, mm-hmm. you know what I think about is Bugs Bunny. There's so many gags that visually that Bugs did accompanied by classical music. It, like when he's slapping Elmer's head with his ears because he just sprinkled the thing to make his hair grow and then there are flowers and the Barber of Seville and all that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The music that accompanies that, you know I mean? Like I will write to that music and then I will use that music because that's the comedy feel that I'm, I'm directly stealing from. And that's a lot of how that works is when you're at the desk mixing is what triggers this emotion and then what have you experienced that works for you and then plug it in. And it yeah. usually works. I don't know. The, again, Carl Stalling. Well, I mean, think about it. Those things were seven minute long. I mean, it's one thing with a two hour long movie to create a, a mood and a style and get, to get people right. invested. But on the other hand, the Warner Brothers show it's seven minutes long. And again, a comedy. That's like working haiku. And practically mime work the whole way. It's almost a silent film in half of those. Yeah. No, 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 no. Again, if we go down this rabbit hole, folks, we'll never come back. So, rabbit okay. hole, Bugs Bunny, but um bump moving There on. we go. Okay. So, tell you what, let's, let's leap to the news so we can then talk about She-Hulk. So, and as always... News portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. And just this past week, the folks who do the animated series for Marvel Studios, uh, Marvel What If, have been out doing some promo. That's largely because the series is up for three daytime Emmys, including the amazing episode from season one 
on the what if Doctor Strange lost his heart instead of his hands. That's actually up for outstanding animated program this year. It will be interesting to see if it gets that recognition. Was it just because it had a dark ending like it was a Twilight Zone episode? What what made that one the one that stood out? I mean, the animation style was all the same from episode mm-hmm. to episode, so... Uh, was it just specifically the storytelling that they, they thought it had an extra dark ending that they liked? What, what made that one claim the spot out of all those? Do you have any idea? It is a genuinely sad end to the story. But the very fact that after you watch those first seven episodes and then as they stepped into episode eight, you began to realize, oh, you know, all of these individual story threads are now going to come together in the season finale. In fact, the Sinister's Doctor Strange we got to see emerges as one of the real heroes of season one of Marvel What If. I think it, it's one of those dual layer things that's going on. It's like, that was a great episode, but I, you know, I love how you did the callback and all that. Right, okay. So while they were out doing publicity out ahead of the Emmys, they did also talk about Marvel What If has actually been renewed for two more seasons, a season two and a season three. Downside is we're not going to get any new episodes till 2023. And one of the episodes we will be getting in season two is, do you remember how they were going to do 10 but then the pandemic happened and it was like, look, we can make our deadline. But we got to lose one or two episodes along the way. This was kind of a heartbreaker for the folks who, who worked on Marvel What If. In fact, uh, director Brian Andrews w- was talking about this because the conceit we just put out there that all of the episodes that they previously done then came together in the season finale. And so it was almost seemed like a running gag of season one of Marvel What If that they kept killing Tony Stark. The number of episodes where Tony would enter the story and then immediately get offed. I thought that was Kenny from South Park in Iron Man costume. <laughs> you bastards! Um, yes, but evidently to, to sort of counter that, they wrote an episode where Tony lived all the way through it and had this amazing adventure with Gamora. And, you know, it was a genuine loss, A, to lose that because they lost their, their heroic Tony Stark story. But then they also had to pull that thread out of the finale. It's like, oh, crap. You know, all this stuff, we, the story we carefully built and we have to sort of unwind the tapestry to get that element out of there but the tony stark gamora episode is supposedly showing up in season two also at the marvel television animation panel at san diego comic-con last month they talked about what was coming for season two in fact as i understand it they showed the entire what if captain carter fought the hydra stomper episode and this is the one that sort of pays off the end credit scene of the season finale for season one of Marvel What If. I want to say Natasha took Captain Carter to show her that they had found the Hydra Stomper outfit that Steve Rogers had previously worn in the show. And again, this is the unsuper soldier serumed Steve Rogers. And the notion is, you know, the suit had been locked away and frozen for for decades. And it's like, and Natasha was like, and there's somebody in there. So evidently we pick up that story in season two, but this is basically the Winter Soldier story. You know, we have a, a Steve Rogers who's revealed to have been programmed by Hydra. And so there are betrayals and reversals and all sorts of cool stuff headed our way. So what's Bucky going to do? Is he going to be the straight man now? They showed them a lot of footage 
But again, that montage format where you're you're like, I hey, I saw this. I saw the Red Guardian interacting with Bucky, and I saw. Ooh. I saw Odin facing down against the Mandarin and Tony Stark on Scar with, with, with Valkyrie and Hulk with the Grandmaster. And it's just sort of like lots of teases of what's coming. But yes, Bucky evidently shows up. But in this case, he's the one helping Captain Carter deal with now a Steve Rogers who's gone rogue. So Okay, uh, so I can tell just by that sentence right there that this will be short-haired Bucky. Because we all know the more evil you are, the longer your hair is. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, again, I literally just got a haircut yesterday where I've got my... You're my, very my heroic cr- today. There we go. There we go. So on the other hand, knowing your hairstyle, when exactly are you going out to plant the bombs? You know, no, the- I'm, I'm uh, so deep in my villainous lair that you'd have to get ah, through a volcano I to find me right now. Okay, so you're still moving the pieces around the chessboard. Absolutely, Got it. yes. Okay, yes, yes. all right. And and speaking of moving, let us move on from Marvel What If to something we should probably have talked a bit more in depth about, which was the opening of, a, of Avengers Campus at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris back on July 20th of this year. And uh, of course, you know, Disney CEO Bob Chapek was there to cut the ribbon and he was also there with Disneyland Paris president Natasha Rafalski. But also alongside Bob and Natasha was Brie Larson, the star of Captain Marvel. And up until this point, I don't think Brie has been outed as a Disney theme park geek. But just the other day, she posted on her official YouTube channel the videos that her boyfriend, Elijah Allen Blitz, took that day. And and after Brie did her official staying there with Bob and posing for photos, you know, she then began to wander the land and check things out. And the boyfriend got her, you know, big-eyed in the pre-show of, of the attraction, getting ready to go on the Avengers Assemble Flight Force uh, coaster ride. Likewise, there's this wonderful moment of Brie going up to the young lady, the cast member in the park, who's playing Captain Marvel that day for the guests. And she just goes up and it's like, you're doing such a great job. I really, oh, you're just so good at this. And it just, I didn't think that, you know, it would be possible for somebody to give James Gunn, who is one of the biggest theme park geeks on the planet, a run for their money when it comes to who's the biggest Marvel Studios theme park fan. But Bree's right up there. I mean... Of course, Kevin Feige, you know, kind of sets the gold standard. I mean, when you go to his office in the Frank Wells building on the Disney lot and you're waiting to meet with him, you're sitting next to his giant, I think it's Robert Strakowski's, made this set of miniatures of Disneyland and and Kevin bought every single one of them. So you're sitting there in the, the lobby and it's like, why is there a miniature version of Main Street USA and the castle here in Kevin's office? And it's like, oh, that's one of his proudest possessions. You know, it, it took him years to assemble that. Some people have their humble figurines. <laughs> Feige's <laughs> got Disneyland. There we go. And Aaron and I learn interesting things that we talk about in the show in weird ways. And I know we've talked previously about how Spider-Man... Across the Spider-Verse, right? That's the first of two sequels to Spider-Man. Into. Into the Spider-Verse. Okay. Because, and film three of the trilogy is called Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse, right? 
Well, where the hell do you go after the Spider-Verse? I mean, that's all of them is, is the Spider-Verse. Where do you go for Beyond? Is well, it like Bed Bath & Beyond, Spider-Verse and Beyond? Well, again, Infinity Beyond. This they've, is Disney. They, they've this got is linens and pots and pans from all the multiverses. There we go. Yeah, there okay. we, yeah again, you want a really good chafing dish. That's yes. where you go. Okay. Originally, this Sony Pictures animation production was supposed to come out on October 7th of this year. But early this year, they pushed off the release date of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. That got pushed off to June 2nd, 2023. While that happened, Sony had already signed contracts for toys that were supposed to be made keying off of this movie. And so... Just this past week, uh, a photo of the cover of the box of a... Do you remember the Pop-O-Matic game Trouble? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there was, or is actually, a version of a Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse Part 1. This tells you how long ago this game was greenlit. Version of Trouble now arriving in stores. But again, you have a, a piece of cover art. And so, hey, I recognize Miles Morales. And okay, I recognize Gwen Stacy. But then behind them is the Scarlet Spider? Are, are you Word, familiar? all right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay, so talk to me about Ben Riley. I'm, I guess, not familiar with... He's a clone of Peter Parker? Yeah, okay, so there's this whole thing that was called the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a comic... Mm-hmm. That is called 101 Ways to End the Clone Wars, where it's a bunch of Marvel writers sitting around a round table trying to figure out how the hell to get out of the mess that is the Clone Wars as a storyline. Mm-hmm. And they come up with 101 ways, basically, and they're, they're all horrible, but it's it, they suffered with that storyline so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in the end, the chameleon, the character, is the one that created the clones. And you end up with characters like Kane, who wore a blue suit and had really long hair because long hair equals evil. Uh, <laughs> and Ben Riley had very, very short hair because he was a good man. And uh, Ben is, uh, comes after Uncle Ben. And Riley is Aunt May's maiden name. Ah, so there's where Ben Riley comes from as a name. Okay, okay. okay. he he didn't want to be Peter, and they did a, this gag for a long time where the Amazing Spider-Man comics ran on with it being Peter Parker after the Clone Wars had ended, and then like a year or two after that, or however many issues I can't remember, uh, they reveal that it wasn't really Peter Parker that you've been following for the last year. It was actually Ben Riley, his clone. And Peter comes back to reclaim his mantle, and Ben goes off to, like, San Diego, San Francisco, somewhere out in California, and mm-hmm. he dyes his hair from brown to blonde. Mm-hmm. And then he dons a red costume with a blue hoodie with a spider spray painted on it and becomes the Scarlet Spider. And there's your Scarlet Spider history, folks. Oh, interesting. Well, evidently, again, based on the, our Papamatic Trouble box, which, which evidently you can go to a store and purchase now because this was in the pipeline for the, the October release of this feature, Ben Riley factors into our Spider-Man and Across the Spider-Verse storyline. So, so we got clones a-coming. We got a clones a-coming. Oh, boy. And speaking of things that are coming, when we get back from this break, uh, Aaron and I will discuss episode one of She-Hulk. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we get to talking about She-Hulk, Aaron has, I, this is a very encouraging bit of news about Madam Web, which I, I think Baltos have been kind of standing outside of going, geez, I hope that's a good movie. Yeah, we really had no idea what to expect from it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the very last thing I expected from it mm-hmm. was an homage to the Terminator. Can you believe that? What are you going to steal? Steal from the best. So Sure, so, why not? Okay, so please explain what we're, we're potentially getting with Matter Web. And, and again, this is the official Sony sort of logline of the OV or... Well, the you know there was rumors afoot, and they have exclusive, and Sony confirms, and that seems to be consistent throughout the web. So either someone grabbed the rumor and it mm-hmm. flooded the web, and we're just bogusly wrong, mm-hmm. or they'll, they're willing to release at least this much, and that's okay. okay. If if this turns out to be true, then great, fine, mm-hmm. let's have it. So the Terminator connection that I referred to is the fact that we're gonna have a young Ben. Parker, mm-hmm. Uncle Ben, and that's Adam Scott, who, you know, got married to Leslie Nope in Parks and Rec there. He's he's playing our mm-hmm. Uncle Ben. And then Emma Roberts, who is niece to Julia Roberts, is going to be playing Mary Parker. And so Mary is a sister of Ben, and uh, she may be or is about to be impregnated with a young Peter Parker. And then people from the future mm-hmm. come to Take care of young Peter in insidious ways, nefarious, horrible, gruesome ways, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, However, Madam Webb, who is going to be played by Dakota Johnson, that much we knew, Mm -hmm. she's going to get together a bunch of people to save Mary and Ben, so young Peter may be born and become the Spider-Man that we all know and love. And the team that she's gathering is uh, Sydney Sweeney. She was on Euphoria. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with the star of Euphoria that was a young Zendaya. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Sydney Sweeney was uh, her uh, friend in that show, and she's going to be playing Julia Carpenter, which is a spider woman who usually wears the black and white suit. Um, we've got Maddie Franklin, who is being played by Celeste O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And uh, her suit is blue and red, but she's got spider arms on the back, kind of like, you know, the big giant mechanical spider arms. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember, like, there's so many different spider girls here that I don't remember all of their monikers. But uh, Isabella Merced is Anya Corazon, who is also another spider woman. And uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, we've got a cast of lovely young women who are all going to be playing spider women of various varieties, maybe from across multiverses, who knows. 
and uh, they're going to be gathered by Madam Web to uh, have a, a someone save like our version of John Connor, which is in this case Peter Parker, and we have no idea who's playing the Terminator. Maybe Arnold, I don't know. Just hearing that storyline and now understanding where this would drop into Spunk. You know, yeah. like, you're learning from Venom and Morbius. It's like exactly all right. that sounds like a good story. Yeah, no, no, no. That's exactly okay. Take that worry off the list. It's like that sounds like it's you know a potentially fun film. So cool. Yeah. And I, I've read a, for a long time the the number of actresses involved. And I'm like, those are all talented people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, if I have no doubt that they can do their job, but if the story's not there for them to dig into, it doesn't matter who, how talented they may be. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad that the story, the foundation of the, the movie is off on, on a good footing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, talented cast on top of that. I really am starting to have some hope for this uh, yeah, Spunk movie. So looking forward to it. Again, you got to walk before you can run. And, and in the mm-hmm. case of Morbius and Venom, you got to stumble before you're going to walk. But a couple of things before we get to, to She-Hulk uh, and, and Disney Plus related. You got to go check out the I Am Groot animated series. They, they did a terrific job with the these, I want to say, six shorts. And in fact, there, there's yeah. honestly a lovely moment in the last one where, once again, you get to see Rocket basically be Groot's dad. Also, something that I, I think folks will really, really enjoy is going over and checking out the latest Marvel Legends, which is about Bruce Banner. Downside is no Edward Durden, nothing, zip, nada. I mean, you know, we get the abomination in in She-Hulk and obviously in Shang-Chi, but no Edward Norton to be seen. But but lovely work by why am I blanking his name now? The the, the gentleman Mark who, Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, you know, lovely, lovely work. And also something I was totally unaware of this, but it turned up on Twitter. The other day, and it, it sort of keys off of what we saw in Spider-Man No Way Home, that you have Doctor Strange struggling to hold it together as the universe is ripping apart. And Peter says, well, do the spell, do the spell that wipes the memory. And Stephen turns to Peter, but everybody who loves you will forget you. And you get the feeling that that's, you know, strange talking from the heart. Well, there was this panel or series of panels that showed up online. From, and I have to find the Spider-Man comic that this comes from. But it's the Hulk and Peter Parker in his Spider-Man outfit. They've just completed something. And Peter spontaneously gives the Hulk a hug. And the Hulk looks down at Peter and says, like, what are you doing, Peter? And giving you a Hulk. And, he, and then Spider-Man starts like, wait, you know my name. And it's like, and it's like, well, yeah, Doctor Strange did his spell and Banner forgot, but I didn't. And it was just this wonderful little moment of connection, this sort of a lovely story filigree to the effect of the spell worked on everyone who was conscious at that point, but Banner was Banner at that point. And, but when he became the Hulk again, he still had the Hulk's memories and he remembered who Peter Parkey was. And, you know, we're all in the hands of Kevin Feige at this point, you know, that <laughs> whether Kevin Feige at some point decides that's a moment I want to sometime fold into the storyline of the, you know, the MCU. I'd love to see that because it was beautifully drawn, wonderfully written and a, a great little emotional beat. But just interesting to have that show up. The week we get She-Hulk, which remember how the the Hulk is used in the MCU films. 
Disney has this understanding with Universal that we can't do a quote-unquote Hulk movie, but we can have the Hulk appear in MCU films. And I would argue, at least for this first episode of She-Hulk, that Mark Ruffalo's take on the Hulk is almost the lead character of, of this. You know, mind you, it's it's largely exposition to sort of set the Jennifer Walters story in motion, but Mark's all over this. And it's just the fact that Universal's lawyers haven't swept in and it's like, okay, you've stepped over the line. This is too much Hulk. Uh, Your Honor, objection. <laughs> there we go. This there is go. not a film. This is a streaming format show, which was not invented at the time of the signing of the contract by my client, Marvel, which, by the way, has been purchased by Disney, who was never in negotiations for this contract to begin with. Oh, you're doing such a good job of channeling Jennifer there. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I, I, just to jump into it, you and I have been hearing for months about they shot it, and then they went back and reshot it, and there was a question of tone. And, and to look at the finished product now, it's like, oh, all of the extra effort here was worth it because it's like, what a great show. Yeah. Uh, one of my more favorite quotes from Mr. Neil Gaiman, as always, it was uh, someone asked him about what happens you know, when you're not inspired to write. And mm-hmm. he says that you write anyway because the reader, when they're reading, will not know whether you were inspired that day or not. And that is a thing that, you know, I take to heart in so many ways professionally is you have, sometimes you just have to get the job done and Mm -hmm. you always shoot for great results. And you're Mm -hmm. right. There Mm -hmm. was a time where this may have been not in the best of shape, but when I watched it today, I I could see no trace of when it was wrong. Mm -hmm. I could only see it being right. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And more to the point, Jennifer Gao, the Rick and Morty veteran who wrote this episode, who directed this episode, she, in interviews just this past week, talked about how she approached Marvel three other times with pitches for shows and pitches, and each time they passed. So as she would say, in this case, she knew She-Hulk backwards and forwards, and she went in for that fourth pitch and and well you know but the weird thing was she went in and she pitched deadpool with a very tall seven foot green woman and they said no and then she's like okay okay hold on what about spider-man with a green seven foot tall woman and they're like no that's stupid and she's like okay wait a minute what about she-hulk with a tall seven foot green woman they're like hey wait a minute you might be onto something lady but for me, what, what's fascinating about if we, we drill down into the origins of this character, you know, She-Hulk comes on the scene uh, in 1980 uh, in, you know, the Savage She-Hulk comic book. And largely, this is Stan Lee and John Bashima, I want to say. They were looking to capitalize on the popularity of CBS's Hulk television series. So this was maybe not the most inspired origin. Well, wasn't this origin, because uh, one of them, uh, cause, mm-hmm. you know, they redo origins, but I, I believe mm-hmm. that she was in a car accident and Bruce was the only one with her blood type available mm-hmm. to save her with a blood transfusion, mm-hmm. which happened happened to pass on his gamma mm-hmm. and made her the She-Hulk. So we kind of got that almost more like a vampire sort of way where, or, or like a zombie movie where it's like, your blood touched my blood. I'm mm-hmm. a zombie now. Mm-hmm. It was, it's like that with the Hulk. Your blood touched my blood. I'm mm-hmm. a Hulk. Yeah. I, but again, a 37 minute long first episode. This is the first time that Marvel has done quote unquote a sitcom, but 
such smart writing. And I just love so many of the story beats in this thing. Like after the car accident, Jennifer finds her way to a bar, ends up in the bathroom, and four women come into to the bathroom. And it just, you know, it's one of those things where it's like a lazy writer would have had them, you know, the, the women immediately be judgmental of how bad, you know, because she, she just crawled out of a car that had been an accident. So her clothes are turned, she's dirty. But no, the four women immediately go to her and help her and here's our phone and let's fix your makeup and blah, blah, blah. And again, just a lovely story beat. And then, but then conversely, she's outside, she's called Bruce. She's looking to get a ride from her cousin and, and three guys come out of the bar and then behave like guys. And, you know, Hey, they, we're just trying to be friendly. And <laughs> that, that first moment where she becomes the She-Hulk, I mean, that camera move when they showed her growth from, from her, POV and that the yeah, reaction that was actually the first time I think we've witnessed anything through a Hulk's eyes yeah. and it was a very cool instant of you know you're seeing something just a little bit off from yeah. Yeah. yeah really well done you no know, absolutely and also important to stress here this is not the first time that somebody has tried to to take the comic book realm and do a sitcom. I, Aaron and I were talking today about Powerless, which I, I want to say ran on NBC for a relatively short time back in 2017. Four hours, I think, was the total, yeah. Yeah, but it was <laughs> short. Yeah, but it, it starred Vanessa Hedge, uh, Hudgens. As, I want to say it was the city across the lake from Gotham. Alan Tudyk, who, again... Is brilliant in anything. Absolutely. If Alan Tudyk is in a show, I'm watching that show. But he played Bruce Wayne's cousin, who was the CEO of, of this division of Wayne Enterprises that never quite got its act together. But there was a lot of promise to the show. And in fact, it was one of these things where, in hindsight... If the, the show had run on a, a sci-fi channel, or for that matter, if a peacock had existed back then, we would have gotten seasons of this, and we only got a single season. But really funny, well-written, but to circle back to She-Hulk, they did such a great job with this. And, and you had a wonderful observation about, you know, so many people have been beating up on the look of the She-Hulk in this thing as, as compared to Bruce Banner, but that's, that's really not fair, right? Well, I mean, there's these subtle things that artists put in to sell uh, in a believable uh, in a believable image, mm -hmm. and the instance if you look at Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, the face he's got whiskers. Some of them are black, some of them are gray. But when he turns his face, light glints off of him in a certain little way, and and mm -hmm. whatnot, and um, it adds to the three dimensionality of his face, you mm -hmm. know, because the, those little hairs stick out just a little tiny bit, mm -hmm. and when you look at She Hulk. Obviously, she has no whiskers, uh, shouldn't have. And so by comparison, her face just looks a little bit more plastic, which leans towards Uncanny Valley a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you were to freeze frame on Thanos, mm -hmm. Thanos also hasn't had a good shave in three or four days. He's always got some whiskers. And that's just to sell three-dimensionality in a face, to give it more depth than what skin will allow. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think that, that She-Hulk right now, I think she looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. I do not understand how when she's normal, she's got super curly hair. And then, like, does Hulk transformation automatically add a relaxer to the <laughs> curls where it just straightens out a little bit? I don't know. 
how that quite works. But I think she looks beautiful. Okay. And uh, I think the effects team did a great job. And now, conversely, the other challenge I think that was is posed here is that mm. Mark Ruffalo has been the Hulk for more than a minute now. They've had him in several movies, Mm-mm. and they've had him digitally, I think, in the can to where you could put Mark Ruffalo in a, in a gray spandex suit with some ping pong balls on it, Mm-mm. put him out on a set, and look at and film him, and then look immediately at the monitor that he's on and see almost a film accurate Hulk, almost a film accurate Hulk, like instantly, mm-hmm. because they've got all the work parts and they've had those working for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Whereas She Hulk, they're creating from scratch. They're still baking those cookies and and getting those assets perfectly done. Mm-hmm. And they know that she's going to be used in films, and and she's only going to look better and better. But this is her first time out, and this is the time when we're going to be most judgmental of her because it's the first time that image is hitting our eyeballs in mm-hmm. real lifetime. And so, yeah, to compare Ruffalo versus our, our new She-Hulk is is really hard to do right now because we're so used to one and so unfamiliar with the other that it's going to be, a, ah, you're new, I don't like it, I'm scared. Yeah, and in fact, it's interesting you bring that up because I don't know if you've heard about the whole IMDB, what's going on over there. You know, people are voting down the show. It's like, uh, it's the the Rose Tico thing all over again. It's toxic male fans who, for some odd reason, because it's a female character, this somehow threatens them. And it's just sort of like, I must react negatively to something I haven't seen yet. And it's just sort of like... Seriously, if you'd seen the show before, you would have never written that. But it's right. just wish this aspect of the web would go away. You know, I, I have no information, but I do have an opinion. It's just right. like, uh, and I hate it with all of my heart and soul, with the fire of a thousand suns. What are we talking about? Yeah, well, there we go. And it just, but, but on the other hand, you know, I, the writing on this was so good. I mean, the whole notion of, you know, I love that that exchange between Bruce and, and Jennifer to the effect, well, you have to learn to control the thing that will turn you into the Hulk is fear and rage. It's like, oh, you mean as a woman, it's something I deal with 24 right. 7. And the writing was so, so smart. To Tonsley Mansley, coupled with Mark Ruffalo, who I I, I love the curves, you know, and the offhandedness that Mark gave to so much of his dialogue. I mean, again, you you really got the sense of these were two cousins who knew each other well. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was no pretense uh, of their interaction with one another. And the thing is that I think that they want to set up Mm -hmm. without saying it Mm -hmm. is that she's superior to him in every way without even trying. Oh, yes, yes. That montage, it's kind of like if Luke met Yoda, mm-hmm. and Yoda's like, come here, youngster, let me show you something, and he, and he levitates some pebbles, and then Luke then takes his X-Wing out of the swamp and sets it next to the pebbles and goes, oh, you mean like that? And Yoda's like, oh, damn. <laughs> you know, that, that's how that would have played out. Like, oh, uh, we need to up our game here. Okay, now... You talked at the top of the segment about there was a car accident and they exchanged blood. But let's talk about what caused the car accident. A spaceship suddenly is hovering in the road ahead of them and Jennifer jams on the brakes and they have their, their car accident. Did you catch what Bruce said once they're... Oh, 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 by the way, I want to go stay at 
the house that Tony built for Bruce. I, sure. You know, the, the whole, the Mexican beach house. It's like, yeah. it, that's available. I, I, you know, Airbnb, let me know. I want to go there. You know what, Disney, by the way, it doesn't take but a few uh, old tiki torches to throw one of those together. I'm sure it's fairly cheap. You can knock one out in probably a couple of days on one okay. of your many islands and or sandy beaches. So get to it. Excellent suggestion. Hulk's Tiki Bar. I love it. <laughs> Extra large drinks for everybody. You need two hands, puny human, to lift that beverage. Hulk only need one hand. Uh, Our shot is a half a liter. Uh, Good luck, okay. chump. All right, go uh, ahead. Okay, no, 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 no. All excellent ideas. And again, that check goes to Aaron Adams. Okay, so Bruce casually tosses off, you know, to the effect of, oh, yeah, that, that thing probably was a Sakaran Class A courier craft. And that someone from Sakaar was trying to deliver a message. And, and weird things happen when you're a Hulk. When you introduce an element like this in literally the first five minutes of you know, season one of what Marvel is hoping will be a, a, a lengthy run of She-Hulk Attorney at Law, there are already theories out there about why this vessel showed up and more to the point who would be wanting to send a message to the Hulk? Would that be the Grandmaster? Sort of. It's a cousin um, of uh, uh, a different, uh, someone associated with the Grand... Well, Sakaar is the place where we hmm. visited in Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. where they had the Gladiator Arena, and Grandmaster was in charge of that joint, where all, it was the Devil's Bunghole, where all of the garbage fell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got a messenger from there. Right. Okay. okay. Now, that said, though, remember that one of the things that the Marvel fans have been chomping at the bit for was to bring some elements of World War Hulk yep. uh, into the MCU. And during his time away, uh, what's the polite way to put this? Hulk got busy? And he's got a son. There we go. And Oh, so these are the paternity papers being dropped off. <laughs> Oh, intergalactic court <laughs> delivery system comes in a spaceship. There wow. You know, Star-Lord's mom should have had a visit similar to that, I think. <laughs> Did you make love to a planet? Wait a minute, what? Here's some papers. Wait a minute, what? Huh? Uh, speaking of which, and to double back to, to what we were talking about at the top of the show, by the way, Ego is supposed to show up in season two of Marvel What If, but... Going forward, going to be interesting. Again, we saw that ship, you know, introduced in episode one, and it's just sort of like, okay, who's in that ship, and what message are they trying to deliver? And I think you may be onto something there. Well, while you're talking about episodes, I do want to add another point about the fact that in some other shows that we've had, Mm -hmm. they felt like a, a more cinematic experience that was chopped up at the right points to create episodes mm-hmm. where if you just watched it from beginning to end, it felt right. You know, it felt like a, almost a cinematic experience. Mm-hmm. And this time I really got the distinct feeling of episodes. Like this was a, a single episode. It had an opening and it had a closing. It told the single origin story all in one mm-hmm. bit. They, we got the training out of the way. We got the origin out of the way. We now get to, and she's so excited to say lawyer show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so we get to the lawyer show, and then stuff happens where she has to be a hero, and mm. it becomes a hero show once again. But what the way that it opened, gave us the story content, and closed felt complete 
and that right. story is done, and episode two will be a different episode. So I, th- I think this show right now feels more episodic, and I like that they're, you know, they've got the ability to flex and be a chameleon, change their colors as they make new content. I don't know, absolutely. And, and the other thing worth noting here is that they have released four episodes to other folks who have just talked about the cameos that are coming up. And coupled with the fact that the level of production value that was just hinted at with this episode continues on through. Well, like I said, you know, if they've got Hulk in the can, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, really, what did it take? It took stretchy pajamas for, mm-hmm. for Mark Ruffalo mm-hmm. and assets that they already had at their disposal. And then they had to create She-Hulk from scratch. But they've got, you know, the resources from Abomination, because that's been in film a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, you know, hoping that they're they're able to just utilize their assets smartly. It's, you know, the work smarter, not harder situation. Mm-hmm. Use mm-hmm. what they've got, use it well. And then you don't have to work so darn hard to tell a very grand story. Yeah, but but all right. Well, one final thing before we head out the door here. I I love that little rueful moment where they're down in the basement and Bruce is explaining to his cousin about how he got this amazing secret lab and you know this whole setup and saying, like, well, Tony built it for me and and the, the whole notion or you know he always said it was a loner. You know he was going to come back and take it, but that you know that it kind of if you look if you notice when she was going down the basement that door is oversized to be mm-hmm. Hulk sized. You know uh, those details. If you look at everything, it is oversized for Hulk sized person in that room. Well, again, got to go back and watch this again. But but no, great, great job right out of the gate. Cannot wait to, uh, you know, for episode two. Downside is, Aaron, if, if you and I are going to stay on top of this thing, unless somebody at Disney Plus is going to be nice to us and start getting us early copies, we have several weeks of doing this show right before we have to deliver it. So speaking of which, you have to get on editing this like ASAP. So let, let, let's wrap and go here. Oh, wait a minute. You're not going to say Captain America fuck. I know. okay. Well, we'll close the show. I think this is an appropriate place to end it. Go ahead. There Ask me go. about my Twitter, please. Aaron, how where can people find you on social media, please? Oh, go to the Twitters. Look up at Azaprod. A Z A P R O D. Oh, Jim, I forgot to tell you this most important news I've heard all week. Uh, Batgirl mm-hmm. uh, is now won a, a kind of accidentally won an award for becoming the longest director's cut for any film ever as it has over 90 minutes of unseen footage. So, <laughs> hey, let, let me hear about your Twitter feed. Where are you at? Yeah, there we go. Okay, well, Nancy wants me to remind you you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Also, want to mention we have a couple other podcasts here that you might want to listen to. We got Disney Dish, which I typically do with Lentel but this week I'm doing it with his, uh, or this coming week, uh, with his sister Chrissy Harrison. Should be fun. Likewise, we have Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor. And then, of course, we have the revived version of Looking at Lucasfilm that I do with Brian Gahn. That will do it. So now I'm going to save this and send it to Aaron ASAP, and hopefully this will be out tomorrow. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon.